Well, I'm curious this morning how many people went, uh, I don't know, week, week and a half ago, a couple weeks ago, to uh, greet the train that was carrying George H.W. Bush back to College Station. Anybody go out there? Uh, our, a lot of people. Our family went out there. Uh, and, you know, I was thinking this morning, how did it feel to be out there to greet that train? For us, it felt very cold. I don't know... Uh, how many of you were there, but it was a cold day, and we didn't anticipate it being quite so cold, so we didn't have coats. Uh, we were wearing long sleeve shirts, but no coats, and so it was windy, it was rainy, it was cold, but we were there with thousands of other people as we watched down that train track, waiting for the train to come into town, and eagerly anticipating the moment where we would see it round the corner. We had a, a, a app on our phone where we were watching the progress of the train as it came up from Houston. And uh, it seemed like it took that train forever to get here from Navasota and then from Wellborn. Uh, But everybody was just peering down those tracks. People were excited. People were waving flags. Some people got really excited and were on the train tracks as they were waiting for the train, I suppose, to greet the train from underneath the train. Just sort of a special type of greeting. But then the moment came where the train rounded the corner and people cheered, people waved flags, and that, that anticipation and that waiting was rewarded. And I thought, man, that's, that's really remarkable that so many people turned up to welcome a leader who had passed away. And I, I began to think, what is it in us that caused us to go out to wait for that moment to come? What sort of anticipation? And I think there, there, there are probably a lot of reasons. One is uh, many people felt, man, it's an honor for our, for our community to be the final resting place of a president. I think for many people, they said, I want my kids to know about this president, right? Whatever you think about him politically, a lot of people felt this is a man who lived with integrity, who lived with honor, who tried to lead as well as he knew how to lead. He was imperfect, but a man of honor. And then I thought, what if, what if we were standing by that track, though, not waiting for somebody who had passed away, but standing by that track, waiting for the arrival of a living leader, of a living king. And standing by that track and saying, okay, any, any minute, there's going to be a, a ruler, a president or a king or a leader who's going to come around the corner and is going to fix forever the mess of our world, right? Because, because within our hearts, there is this desire to see a leader who will rescue us. I think every four years, we see that desire for a leader who will rescue us bubble up to the surface of our national conversations. Why do we argue so much about which man or woman is the best one to take the reign of our nation. It's because within us, there is a desire to have somebody who will rule us, who can fix the chaos of the world that we live in. And it might comfort us to know we're not alone in that. That's not just an American quality. That's a human quality. And in fact, the story of the Scripture in many ways is the story of people standing by the tracks, looking down the tracks, going, okay, I know that just around that bend, a leader is going to come who's going to fix everything. 
right? The story of the Bible, really, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through to Revelation chapter 22 is the story of the people of God looking around at the world and saying, man, the world is broken. The world is full of sin and suffering and death. And we need a rescuer. And so as you read throughout the Old Testament, what you see is the people of God uh, welcoming leaders into their nation and into their world, right? King after king after king, leader after leader, and asking the question, is this the one who's going to save us? You'll remember last week, we talked about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, how God's son became flesh, took on flesh and entered into our world. And we we talked about three principles about God that we learned from the incarnation. You remember? Some of you remember what they are because hopefully you got one of my expertly designed green cards. God loves us. God understands us. God is saving us, right? And we said, because because Jesus entered into the world, we have confidence that God loves me, God understands me, God is saving me. What I want to do this morning is I want to zero in on the third point that we made last week. God is saving us. And what I want to do is I want to look at how the scripture unfolds this story about God's son coming to save us, to save us from our sin, to save us from suffering, to save us from death, and then ultimately to establish a kingdom where Jesus will be the king we've been waiting for ever since the world fell apart that Jesus is going to one day come back and set up a perfect kingdom where he will reign forever. There will be no more curse, as we just sang. And I think at Christmas, this is a critical message for us to focus on because for many people, Christmas is a time that is, that is mingled with both joy and grief. Right? Celebration and sadness. Because we celebrate the coming of Jesus. But we also look around, we look at our lives, we look at our world, and we say, but, but it's still broken. Some of you in this room, you're wrestling with tragedy, with grief, with heartache, and with loss. And, and, and as we look down the track, the question we have is, is somebody coming to, to save us? And, and the story of Christmas is that On that day when Jesus was born, God entered our world and said, yeah, I'm coming. I'm coming. A king is coming to rescue. So that's what we're going to look at this morning is this idea that God has a plan. God has a plan to save us, to save the world, to undo all that is wrong and then build everything that is true and right and good. God has a plan. First of all, God has a plan to overturn the curse, to overturn the curse. Now, when we sang Joy to the World just a few minutes ago, we talked about how the mercy of God will come everywhere that the curse is found. Now, Now, some of you are familiar with this term, the curse. Some of you may not be, but it comes all the way from Genesis chapter three, right? We're three chapters into the Bible. And you remember what happened? God had placed Adam and Eve, the first man and woman in the Garden of Eden, He had given them this garden. He said, you know what? You can eat from any tree in the garden except this one over here. Don't eat from this tree. And it doesn't take very long into the scripture before they 
eat from the tree, right? They listen to the voice of the serpent, the voice of Satan, and they eat from the tree. They disobey God. And consequently, God says to them, because of what you have done, you are cursed, right? You came from dust. You're going to go back to dust. You're going to die. And the ground itself is cursed. The world is cursed. The world doesn't work like it's supposed to work. There will be suffering. There will be toil. There will be sadness, and there will be death. But the message of Jesus Christ is that God has a plan to overturn the curse. God has a plan to overturn the curse. As you look throughout the beginning of the Scripture, and really all the way through, you get the sense that that we broke the world, right? We broke it with our sin, and we can't fix it. I remember when my kids were small, Sometimes they would get a snack like a graham cracker, you know, a graham cracker like this and has several panels to it. And before they would eat it, it would break, right? It would break in half or something along those lines. And I can remember uh, toddlers handing me pieces of a graham cracker and saying, fix it, daddy, right? And I have to tell them, I cannot fix a graham cracker. That's irreversible damage, right? (laughs) Only divine intervention could reseal this graham cracker, right? And I don't anticipate the miracle of the reconstituted graham cracker. <laughs> Sorry. It's broken. You can still eat it, but it's, it's broken. It, it will never be the same as when it was whole. And that's what we see in Genesis 3. The damage done by sin requires divine intervention to overturn. We broke it. We can't fix it. But the message of the gospel is that God is enacting a plan to fix it, to overturn the curse. Let me show you a couple of passages. Zechariah chapter 14 says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. People will live in Jerusalem, and there will no longer be a curse. That God will set up a kingdom in which the curse will be destroyed. Revelation chapter 22, there will no longer be any curse. John takes this phrase straight from Zechariah. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the new Jerusalem, and his bondservants will serve him. God has a plan that when Jesus returns, the curse will be overturned. Many years ago, when I was uh, in elementary school, we had a, a neighbor next door who had a basketball hoop on their driveway right over their garage door. We had our own basketball hoop, but for some reason we liked theirs better. So we would go over and we would play basketball on their driveway. And one day we had a a, a ball and we were playing and I stood all the way at the back of their driveway and I grabbed, it was a smaller basketball, I grabbed it like this and I lobbed it toward the basket and I missed the basket and it dropped below the basket and it went right through one of the windows of their garage and it shattered. And we thought, man, we're in trouble. But we knew the right thing to do was probably to go explain what had happened, partly because we knew they were going to figure it out anyway. There weren't a lot of kids, other kids playing on their driveway. So we went around, uh, we knocked on the door. This guy came out and he looks at it, he goes, oh, he goes, it's all right. And he reaches over, he had sons himself, right? So he reaches over to a spot in his garage and he's just got a stack of extra window panes. I'm not making this up. And he grabs one and he clears the other one out and he kind of sets it in there and he goes, all good. And he goes back into his house. 
I thought, man, he's ready for anything that could happen. Right, and that's the picture that we get when we talk about the coming of Jesus is we look at the world and we go, we broke it. God says, it's all right. I can fix it. I've got a plan. And that plan is put into motion from eternity past, but we see that plan enter our world the night Jesus comes. And there's all this celebration because he's here to overturn the curse. What does it mean that there will no longer be any curse? Let me offer a few implications. No more curse, first of all, means no more sin. You remember last week, we talked about the name of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Remember, we said the name Jesus derives from the Hebrew name Joshua. Yahweh saves. He will save his people from their sins. Now, this is, this is really an amazing statement in a couple of respects. One, because there's this promise in Jesus that he's going to fix what was broken. But, but it's also an amazing statement because if you were a Jewish person in the first century, you didn't necessarily think the first thing I need to be saved from is my sin. You thought, I need to be saved from all of my other enemies. I need to be saved from Rome. I need to be saved from oppression. I need to be saved from poverty. Maybe even death. Right? But the angel, Gabriel, when he announces the coming of Jesus, he hits right at the real issue. What you need salvation from is the brokenness of this world. And the the world is broken because you and I sinned. We disobeyed God. And so the promise of Jesus is that there will come a day where there will be no more sin. For those who know Jesus Christ, for those who trust in Jesus Christ, you can have the assurance that your sin will be forgiven. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, that's the message of Christmas, is that God sent His Son to bring forgiveness and to free us from the penalty of our sin. That is, we, we disobeyed God. We deserve eternal separation from God. And yet Jesus came and he died on a cross and he rose again. So we can have freedom from the penalty of our sin. Right? But it's not just the penalty of our sin. Ultimately, what we see is that when Jesus returns, he'll bring us freedom from the presence of sin itself. There will be no more sin. No more violence, no more hatred, no more immorality, no more lying. None of that in the kingdom of God. No more curse means that the problems of our world are dealt with at the root. So that when Jesus came the first time through his death and resurrection, he dealt with the issue of sin. No more curse means no more sin. Secondly, it means no more suffering. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. We'll talk about that one in a moment. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. When Mary receives the announcement in, in the book of Luke about the coming of Jesus, that she is going to be the mother of Jesus. She sings this song 
She bursts out in a song. In fact, all the way through uh, Luke chapter one and two, we see people start singing at the announcement of Jesus. And Mary's song is, is beautiful. And really it's, 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 it's a heart-wrenching type of song because here's what Mary says. She says, hey, you have, you have taken those who were low, those who were humble, and you've raised them up and you've taken those who were rulers and you've brought them down. What is she saying? She's saying that with the coming of Jesus, There's no longer going to be oppression. There's no longer going to be this violence on a national scale. There's no longer going to be the type of suffering that we attribute to this world. She says, look, I'm lowly, and yet God has honored me. And so this is the one who's going to raise up. She says, he'll fill the hungry with good things. No more poverty, no more suffering, no more crying, no more pain. No more curse means no more sin, means no more suffering. Thirdly, no more curse means no more death, no more death. I want to show you a couple of passages from Luke chapter 1 and then also from 1 Corinthians. You may remember that uh, when uh, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, first heard the message that he was going to uh, have a son, Zacharias doubted this message, right? Because his wife was, was barren, right? So Gabriel says, you're going to have a son. And Zacharias goes, hey, how do I know you're telling the truth? And I love the angel's response. He goes, I am Gabriel. I came from heaven. I'm the archangel. And he says, Zacharias, you're going to be mute until the time that your son comes, right? And you're going to name him John. And so Zacharias, this priest, he can't talk now. Right, So when everybody asks his wife, Elizabeth, hey, what's the name of your son going to be? And she says, we're going to call him John. And they go, no, there's nobody in your family named John. Call him Zacharias. Call him something like that. And Zacharias grabs a pen and goes, his name is John, right? And writes it out because he's not going to mess up what the angel said again for fear of worse things, right? But here's what happens when the child comes, Zacharias is tongue is loosened and he he begins to sing in Luke chapter 1 verses 68 to 71. And this is part of what he says. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. In other words, John the Baptist, this prophet, was going to be the final prophet before the Messiah would come. And Zacharias says, this is the moment when God is entering the world and his Messiah is coming. And the result is going to be salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. Now, again, if you're reading that from the standpoint of a first century Jew, you're immediately going to think salvation from the Romans, salvation from all of the Gentiles, salvation from all of our problems. But as you read through Luke 1, Luke 2, as you read through Matthew 1, you also see that the greatest enemy we face has its root in sin. But what is it? It leads to death. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When we talk about enemies, what does it say? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That the one who came at Christmas, our Savior Jesus, will destroy all of our enemies, ultimately death itself. His resurrection promises us a resurrection. 
few years ago, some of you will remember, we preached through the book of Ecclesiastes. And the book of Ecclesiastes essentially is, uh, you know, most of the book is your life is really going to be a bummer and then you will die. Right. So we're preaching it through. And, and after the, the, the first week, right, I had to set up like the book of Ecclesiastes is really sad. You can build everything in the world. You can have a great career. You can have a great family. You can have every great thing and you're still going to die. And nobody will remember you. So God bless you. Have a wonderful week. Right. So so I preached this and, and then somebody came up and was like, man, about halfway through your message, I was like, I think I'm going to cry. This is the worst, saddest message that I've ever heard. But, but at the heart of the book of Ecclesiastes is the, the recognition that, that, that death hangs like a shadow over all of us. Doesn't matter whether you're rich. Doesn't matter whether you're poor. Doesn't matter whether you do the right thing or the wrong thing. You are going to die. And where Ecclesiastes lands is the, your only hope is to trust that God knows what he's doing. And when we get to the New Testament, we see very clearly, yeah, God has a plan. He knows what he's doing. Death is not simply a normal part of life. Death is an intruder. It's a thief. Death is a result of the fall. And yet the promise of Christmas and then the promise of of Easter is that God entered the world and said, I'm, I'm going to overturn death itself, the greatest enemy you face. There will be no more curse. That means no more sin, no more suffering, no more death. God has a plan to overturn the curse. All right, but it's not simply a plan to overturn the curse. God also has a plan in Jesus to establish his kingdom forever. In other words, it's not just the undoing of all the bad things. It is the rebuilding of the kingdom of God, where Jesus will reign over a renewed, restored, remade earth forever and ever and ever. The only kingdom that will last forever Those of you, which should be most of you, you studied world history probably way back in junior high or early high school, and you may remember studying Alexander the Great. Remember Alexander the Great, this Macedonian conqueror and king. By the time Alexander was 25 years old, he had conquered most of the known world. Let that sink in for a minute, because you are behind the eight ball in a major way got work to do, right? Unless you're still in college, you've got a few years. 25 years old, he ruled an empire. He died when he was 33. And you know what happened to his empire? It didn't hold together. It was sliced into quadrants. Four of his generals each took a piece. And then ultimately, the Romans came and took it all. But where are the Romans? Where are the Byzantines? The great empires of history, they rise and they fall. They rise and they fall. And not to bum you out, but the United States will be no different unless Jesus comes first. 
right? But the, the scripture says Jesus will come and initiate a kingdom that will last forever. It will never fall. It will never be overturned. It will never be conquered. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Now I want us to notice for a moment, not only will his kingdom have no end, but, but keep your eye on this idea that he will reign over the throne of his father David, over the house of Jacob forever, because that's going to be significant. Let me show you how Matthew chooses to announce the coming of Jesus. He says this, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you're reading the Gospels and you begin with Matthew 1.1 and you see these verses and you go, oh man, genealogy, let's skip down where are the wise men, we'll find them. Right, But this is deeply significant. You need to understand that packed into the very first verse of the New Testament, Matthew is saying something to his readers that would have been astounding. Right? Let, let, me, let me lay this out for you for just a minute. He says the record of the genealogy, Jesus the Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew term. You see it in the New Testament as the word Christos or Christ. Right? Same word. Christos is the Greek version. Messiah is the Hebrew version. Jesus the Christ or the Messiah. What was the Messiah? It's a word that means the, the anointed one, the chosen king. Right, as you read throughout the Old Testament, especially throughout the Psalms, you begin to get a sense, Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 89, where this word will be used, the Messiah, Mashiach, that there's a king who is coming, a king that we are waiting for, and that king will be from the family of King David. And that king will reign forever. Because you remember God made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. And he said, David, one of your descendants will inherit a house and a throne and a kingdom. And it says his kingdom will have no end. See that all the way back with King David, God had said, David, there's going to be a king who's going to come after you who will have the right to reign over my people forever and ever. And David, of course, is a son of Abraham. And you remember what God promised to Abraham? He says, Abraham, I want you to go to this land. I'm going to give you a land that belongs to your descendants. And I'm going to give you descendants as many as the sand on the seashore, as many as the stars in the sky, land, I'm going to give you seed. And then he said, I'm going to bless your people. And then he says, you know what? Your people will bless all of the earth. Your descendant will bless all of the earth. And in fact, in Galatians, Paul would say, notice that to Abraham, he says, your seed and not your seeds. In other words, the promise to Abraham included this promise. Abraham, one of your seed, one of your descendants will be the source of blessing." For all the nations. David, one of your descendants, will be a king who will reign on a throne forever and ever and ever in Jerusalem over the people of God and over the whole earth. And we call him the Messiah. Right? So you see what Matthew does in Matthew 1 1. Right at the beginning of the book, he says, The record of the genealogy of the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right? If you know all that background, all of a sudden you go, This is huge. Matthew is saying, this is the one who is going to restore the kingdom of God forever and ever and ever. I don't know how many of you have seen 
all of the Star Wars films. A lot of you probably have. You've seen the older ones. Uh, You've seen the ones that were, you know, in the middle, like in the 90s. And then the the new ones, right? And of course, uh, if you saw the newer ones that just came out in the last few years, you remember episode seven, Star Wars episode seven, there's there's this scene right toward the end of episode seven where where the the plot is advancing and then right at the end, right, they they come up on on a a guy and he's he's in a robe and he's standing over a cliff. And he turns around and he pulls back his robe. And it's Luke Skywalker, right? It's Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker. And those who have followed all the movies, like if you're sitting there with your kids, you're like, oh my gosh, it's Luke Skywalker. Right? But your kids are like, wait, who? If they haven't seen the old ones. Because packed into that one moment, right? And some of you, you haven't seen them. You're like, I don't know what you're talking about right now. And that proves my point. If you've seen them, this moment is freighted with meeting. You go, oh, that's who that is. And that's what's going on. And there's this continuity from the old to the new. That's what happens in Matthew 1.1. See, we read it and we go, okay, genealogy, nice, nice, good, good, good. And now here's the good stuff. But Matthew writes this. And if, if you were a Jewish person reading this, you would go, that's the guy. That's the one who will restore the world to the way it's supposed to be. Give us victory over our enemies and a kingdom that will last forever. That's what Matthew is claiming. That's what Luke is claiming about Jesus. And it's not just a kingdom over the nation of Israel. It's a kingdom over all of the earth. Luke chapter 2 This is the the words of a man named Simeon. Some of you will remember this old man, Simeon, who saw Jesus as a baby in the temple. He had waited for the Messiah his whole life, and he says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people, Israel. This is a king who will bring salvation not just to the Israelites, but to all of the nations who will do away with sin, who will do away with suffering, who will do away with death, and then reign forever and ever. Right. So the last thing we see in the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, is heaven comes to earth, and Jesus Christ reigns forever and ever and ever. And there will be no more curse, no more tears, No more death, no more mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. right, so when Jesus comes the first time, he addresses the rot at the foundation. The sin that leads to death. When he comes the second time, he abolishes sin and suffering and death forever. I was thinking about that uh, this week. Some of you, I- I've had the opportunity to tell this, but uh, our family experienced some loss just this past week. Uh, I woke up in the night to find that our home was underwater. Uh, we had had a pipe that had burst underneath our foundation, and just while we slept, water was gushing into our home. All right, so we fled like Mary and Joseph from the premises. <laughs> Went to my parents' house, 
So I came back. I waited for the plumber. I waited for the, the people who would dry out our house. And, and when they got there to dry out the house, you know, they, br- they brought all these fans and, and all of this equipment. Uh, but it hadn't occurred to me fully, you know, it's the middle of the night, that uh, they were going to rip apart our floors, right? So they just begin to rip up the hardwood, rip up the carpet. You come in and you go, this is the concrete underneath, right? And, and, and if, you, if you're not prepared for that, you go, why are you tearing it up? You're ruining it, right? And of course, the proper answer is no, no, the, the water ruined it. And now we have to rip up the damage before we can rebuild. All right, Jesus comes and he has to rip out the rot first. Right? And, so, and so when Jesus comes and he begins to proclaim salvation, the first response people have is, yeah, man, bring it. We want to be saved. We want a kingdom. Kill the Romans. And Jesus says, yeah, but you, you've got a rod in your heart that has to be addressed first. Man, it hurts to tear that up. But the only way that we can have forgiveness and eternal life is because Jesus deals with sin. And so he dies on a cross. And then three days later, he rises again. So that all who trust in him, the sin is forgiven and the spirit can move in. So that the next time Jesus comes, he says, now we rebuild. A world with no sin. A world where death and decay and suffering will never have a place again. And so he, he destroys our greatest enemy, sin. He defeats death. And then one day he'll come back and restore. So God has a plan. In just a moment, our worship team is going to come back and they're going to lead us in song as we close. As we, as we reflect on this, God has a plan to overturn the curse and to establish his kingdom forever. So the question for us is is simply this, at this time of year and really every time of year, will we worship God and then trust his plan? Will we worship God and then trust his plan? Even as we struggle with the brokenness of the world, even as we struggle with our own sin and the devastation it causes or with the sin of others, as we grieve loss, as we grieve death, where the scripture continually points us is to say, a day is coming because of what Jesus did the first time. A day is coming when death and suffering and loss and sin will be overturned. So will we trust his plan? Allow me to pray and then we'll close in worship. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful that you loved us so much that you did not leave us alone in our sin, in our suffering. You did not leave us alone to be swallowed by death. But as as 1 Corinthians would tell us, you, you swallowed up death in victory through the death and resurrection of your son. So Father, we pray that we would we would trust you now to know that because you raised Jesus from the dead, 
The day is coming when all who trust in Jesus Christ will also be raised from the dead. Sin will be no more. Suffering will be no more. Death will be no more. And we will live with you and reign with Jesus forever and ever and ever. Let us trust you, even in loss, sadness, and grief. Father, we thank you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.